This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by Vimeo Live. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. And it's October 12th, 2017. On this week's show, Hurricane Harvey, Weinstein that is, highlights from our New York Film Festival coverage, what exactly is the future of storytelling, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hey everybody, and welcome to this week's show, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. John and I are here this week on our own as Charles Hain is out on his honeymoon. Congratulations again, Charles. And we are here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So, at the top of the headlines this week, we have to talk about Harvey Weinstein. And honestly, I don't really want to. No sooner did I complain on last week's show about the frequency of sexual misconduct stories that I've had to report from our industry than the biggest one of my tenure broke. But it's the not talking about it that let this despicable behavior go on for decades. And so talk about it we will. So the background you likely know. Harvey and his brother Bob founded Miramax in the 70s and as good as invented indie film as we know it in the late 80s and early 90s. You know how we always refer to Sex, Lies, and Videotape as the seminal indie film? That was theirs. So was Pulp Fiction and The Crying Game and on and on. Weinstein eventually became one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. And all the while, there was a dark underbelly to his success story. After months of research, the New York Times published an article last week detailing decades of sexual abuse of young women by Weinstein. The article uncovered eight settlements where female accusers were paid off in exchange for their silence. Then, Weinstein wrote a weird public apology letter in response to the New York Times, which mentioned the money he had recently put into a fund to help women directors as if that would offset his behavior. And then he subsequently threatened to sue the paper for publishing the damning article in the first place. The stories of Weinstein's abuse have a pattern. They feature very young women early in their careers, invited by Weinstein to meet about a movie opportunity. And when they show up for that meeting, all of the staff disappear, and Weinstein shows up partially or fully naked and tries to coerce them into various activities like letting him jerk off in front of them, or much worse. Then, a couple days after the New York Times story broke, the New Yorker magazine released a story based on its own 10-month investigation that includes 13 on-the-record stories from Weinstein victims. This time, the accusations even included rape. The New Yorker story also included a recording from a police tape of Weinstein attempting to coerce a young model into his hotel room despite repeated protests from her. You can listen to the tape at newyorker.com, but heads up, it is disturbing. This has all gone down over the course of a week, and the story continues to snowball as major Hollywood names including Angelina Jolie and Gwyneth Paltrow have now come forward with similar tales from early in their careers. Weinstein has now been fired from the Weinstein Company, which he started in 2005 after Miramax was sold to Disney, and the story is all over the mainstream press. But the cynics say that the board was already looking for reasons to oust him because the company hasn't been performing as well lately. So what's the takeaway? First of all, guys, I don't need to say this again, but I will. Just don't engage in this behavior. It is unacceptable. The end, period. But this particular story brings up another point. As we say here in New York, if you see something, say something. As I said at the top of the segment, the only reason this was able to go on for 30 years is because of the complicit silence of the assistants, lawyers, staff, and likely other cast and crew in Weinstein's orbit. 
If you know that something like this is going on on a set that you're part of, please consider saying something or at the very least documenting it should another witness come forward. My dad dated Harvey Weinstein's ex-girlfriend. Isn't that weird? <laughs> she dated my dad before she dated Harvey Weinstein. And then like one night they all went out to dinner in San Francisco and were just like having a normal night, I guess. So I don't know. I thought I was that that was interesting when my dad told me that story, and now it kind of shines in a different light, and it's gross. It's <laughs> totally gross. Oh my gosh! Did he? Did Harvey Weinstein invite your dad back to his hotel room? No, no, yeah. he didn't. No, your dad's not a nineteen-year-old actress, I guess. No, he's like a, he was like a forty-year-old psychiatrist at the time. So <laughs> I think that's a different. I think that's a different taste. And then another time, I was in an elevator with Harvey Weinstein, and it was just like you could feel this like power just like exuding from him, and it was really scary. He's a scary dude. I'm actually glad to hear you say that because I think you know so many people are saying, well, why are these women coming out now? And the thing is, the guy is scary. He's a large man, very powerful, threatens to destroy people's careers, and actually, at least at one point, had the power to do so. Yeah, I mean... I was working at this place called Sleep No More at the time, and he was going up in the elevator, and it's a dark elevator, but there was like, you know, an hour of preparation just for him to get there, basically. Like, you could feel his presence from 15 blocks away, from like miles away. People would be like scared of everything having to be in complete order before Harvey showed up. So, I don't know. He's a (laughs) very scary dude. Well, I hope the fact that someone with even that intimidating, with that much power, the fact that he's now being brought down by this will, you know, set an example or pave the way for this not to happen so readily in the future. Meanwhile, in much happier news, as we mentioned last week, the New York Film Festival is currently underway. It's the 55th version of the festival, which is run by the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and it kicked off September 28th with the premiere of Richard Linkletter's Last Flag Flying, and it runs all the way through this coming Sunday. So we've been covering the festival, of course, but I should mention that it's really different from most of the other festivals we cover and that it's more of like a celebration of cinema overall, with less of a focus on brand new films that are on the market for distributors. It only has 25 films in its main slate of new narrative work, plus almost as many docs, 18. And again, remember, a festival like Sundance has 250. Uh, New York Film Festival also has the biggest selection of experimental films that we know of at any large festival in its projection section. And otherwise, it's special programming like revivals of digitally preserved classics. And this year, a Robert Mitchum retrospective featuring 25 films from the actor's 50-year career. So yeah, it's it's very different than the rest of the festivals, um, but it also kind of always marks the end of the festival circuit for the year, and that's why it's special or it stands out. There aren't any more big ones until Sundance in January, so in many ways, these selections are the cream of the crop from festivals like Cannes, TIFF, and all the rest from 2017. As Liz said, there are also always at least two or three major premieres that happen, but those movies usually already have a distributor. So, like, for example, this year, those two were Richard Linklater's Last Flag Flying and Woody Allen's Wonderstruck, I think, uh, premiered at New York Film Festival. And I know that Last Flag Flying was is being distributed by Amazon, and it was already sort of, you know, a done deal at that point. I'm not sure who was distributing Wonderstruck, but I'm pretty sure it already had a major distributor attached. Isn't that the one he did for Netflix? I'm not sure. 
So I actually saw Linklater a few times in my trips up to Lincoln Center, where the festival is held every year. The first was after a screening of the aforementioned Last Flag Flying, where he gave a Q&A with stars Lawrence Fishburne, Brian Cranston, and screenwriter Daryl Ponixon, who also wrote The Last Detail, which this film acted as a sort of sequel to. It's not your typical Linklater film in that it's got some deep political themes rather than the sort of existential meanderings we're used to from his characters. And its odd brand of patriotism comes at an even odder time for the country. The audience at this Q&A, four days removed from a Sunday full of NFL protests and the unbearable debate which followed and is still happening, couldn't help but draw connections with the themes of the director's latest film. Because they're both about flags. My favorite moment from any of the Q&As I saw happened when an eager audience member asked how the cast and filmmakers felt about the film fitting into that debate. Lawrence Fishburne, who was dressed in this satin red kimono-like suit, was quick to dismiss the notion. We're not fitting into that. We ain't got nothing to do with that, he insisted with a flair of characteristic vigor. We are so far removed from the ridiculousness of this conversation, Linklater laughed off in agreement. So for those of us who haven't seen it, what is, why would anyone even think this film had something to do with the flag debate? What's it about? Well, it's about three Vietnam vets who reunite, I think, after like 30 years of not seeing each other. And one of them has gone out to find his two buddies because his son has just returned from the Iraq war, killed in action. So when they have these ceremonies uh, to uh, memorialize the fallen victims that are killed in action, there's like a flag that's draped over their coffin and there's flag ceremonies that happen and the whole thing was about how uh, this group of Vietnam vets actually didn't want that for the son. They wanted to take him home and bury him uh, in their home graveyard rather than in Arlington. So it's, it's you know, Linklater referred to it as more of a road trip movie than a war movie. Um which it is. It's a road trip movie, and it's not really a war movie uh, because it doesn't really have any of those staples. Like, it's it's domestic, for one thing. But the themes are really patriotic, and, like, these people who are trying to uh, bring their son home, they still have a love for America and for the military, and I just sometimes felt like it was almost borderline propaganda-y as to, like, this feeling of... Uh, being a, what a good soldier is for for the country and stuff. So I don't know. It's it was a weird. It's a weird line to to cross. It's a weird thing to talk about and to try and put on film. But Linklater did his best. There were a few other movies I saw that were all really good. Ruben Oslin's The Square and Sean Baker's The Florida Project were the perfect way to cap off what was an incredible year of film. They're two of the most original pieces of art I have seen in a long, long time. I'm happy to say that I was able to snag interviews from both Baker and Ostland, and these films are just really exciting for anyone to talk about after their first viewing, let alone with the directors. If you haven't listened to Monday's interview with Baker yet, you really should. I've never been more inspired by an interviewee. We talked for a half hour all about the lengths to which Baker invested in himself as a low-budget filmmaker before the Florida Project was even mentioned. We really didn't even get to talking about the Florida Project. That's how practical and great his story is. Um, he just, you know, had to self-fund his own features, five of them, until he finally got this break with Tangerine and found a financer to make The Florida Project, which was his first million dollar budget movie. 
he's also just one of the more humble, down-to-earth auteurs I think there will ever be in film history, period. Ruben Ostland is an auteur of another kind. His process of thinking and speaking mirrors the insanity of his films, like Force Majeure. Not to mention, the dude is just one funny Swede. (laughs) (laughs) The Square is a deeply personal film in that it deals thematically with a lot of current issues that Ostland is wrestling with, such as trust, such as pretension, such as art and new media. He's truly brilliant, and his film is fucking insane. Look out for that podcast coming out soon in the next couple weeks, especially if you plan on seeing the film, because it illuminates some of the more mind-bending complexities that take place. Here's an excerpt from the Q&A after his screening so you can get a sense for what those themes are. The protagonist of The Square is like many modern artists in that he clings to some strong ideals to make sense of society. The same could be said of Ostland himself. The problem is, we aren't always able to live up to the ideals that we preach. So here's what Ostland had to say, quote, For me, that's really the breaking point for when human beings get interesting. You know, we are not an animal, and we are an animal. But at the same time, we are a rational creature that is trying to be civilized. And the conflict for us as a species really happens at this breaking point between being trapped in our needs and our instinct, and also at the same time trying to be fair to each other and trying to control these instincts. So yeah, that's the level of thinking we get down to in our conversation, and it's just really interesting. The dude is a philosopher, really. I know I haven't really said anything about the plot of the film, but that quote above should give you some sort of idea about what it's actually about, because it's really hard to explain in terms of storylines. Well, I have to congratulate you, John. You did a really excellent coverage of the festival this year, and I'm excited for people to read the stuff that we're linking to in this week's podcast post and the forthcoming stuff that you're still working on. I haven't done as much this year, but I'm really excited for a masterclass I'm going to with both Vittorio Storaro and Ed Lachman, who shot Woody Allen's Wonderstruck and Todd Haynes' Wonder Wheel, respectively, both of which are playing at the festival. Storaro is known for shooting with Bertolucci and Coppola and Lachman for shooting with Vendors and Soderbergh, so this should be a treat, and I will write it up for you guys. I also saw the movie Spielberg, which I'll talk about more later in the episode, and an absolutely gorgeous film called Call Me By Your Name, directed by Luca Guadagnino, that premiered at TIFF. This movie's gotten a ton of press and great reviews, and I feel like almost every headline deals with one particularly juicy, let's say, masturbation scene. But there's so much more to the movie than that, and I am determined to expand my own coverage of it when I write about it for No Film School this week. So the movie's actually coming out next month, so you'll just have to wait until then to hear more details about it from me. But meanwhile, as I said, we'll link to all the coverage John mentioned on this week's podcast post, plus great articles from our writer Sophia Harvey, who also covered the festival, including Greta Gerwig on her directorial debut Lady Bird, and more. So smack in the middle of the New York Film Fest, I attended another event that's become really significant in recent years called The Future of Storytelling. Up until this year, this was a private summit held for some of the greatest minds in the storytelling business to discuss, guess what? This year, in addition to the conference, the organizers opened a three-day festival to the public, showcasing over 100 VR, AR, and interactive projects, and hosting a series of talks, performances, and hands-on experiences like LARPs and a smell walk. Yes, I said smell walk. As you might guess, this is some straight-up nerd shit, so of course, I was right at home. Some of my favorite exhibits were the more analog ones, but even those were really nerdy, like the Compound Camera, which was a 20-foot inflatable installation made of 109 pinhole cameras that lets you see the world as a fly does. 
Steven Soderbergh was there giving a talk about his first interactive movie called Mosaic, which he's developing for HBO, and it's supposed to launch next month. It's a movie in app form shot from multiple perspectives, and depending on whose storyline you decide to follow, you get a whole different experience. What was really interesting in hearing him talk about his process was what a challenge it was even for him, even though he's directed so many traditional movies. And then when he went to show a demo, he had technical difficulties. That was kind of my takeaway from the entire event. We just haven't quite figured this stuff out yet, especially in terms of how to showcase it to large audiences. As my friend Mark Harris, who himself is a tech guy working in interactive stories, said, quote, feels like the future is a lot of warm, sticky communal VR helmets. Ew. This festival was a slickly produced event that obviously had a lot of time and money put into it, and yet there were long waits to see most of the projects, several had technical glitches or straight up didn't work, and most of the volunteers had no idea how to troubleshoot, which ends up being really frustrating to the artists and the audiences. So as the day went on, I was starting to feel a little jaded about the whole thing, and then... I did my first real AR or augmented reality experience, and I have to admit, my mind was blown. It was based on the FX show Legion and was produced by Justin Denton of Here Be Dragons, who, by the way, were involved in Sleep No More, the show John mentioned. This thing was actually what they call a fully immersive mixed reality experience because it also included interaction with real actors. But the AR part used these Microsoft HoloLens glasses where you can see your surroundings through the glasses, but you can also see images mapped onto those surroundings and interact with them. So like I walked into an empty room with an empty table and empty picture frames, and when I put on the glasses, there were pictures in the frames and things on the table. And I became physically part of a scene where I was talking to people and action was happening. It was one of the most successful interactive stories I've seen. But I think that one of the main reasons it was so successful is because there were real humans involved and I wasn't left to my own devices in some virtual world. Which means, again, that it's really hard to replicate or show to large audiences simultaneously. All in all, it was a thought-provoking event that left me wondering whether the future of storytelling might actually be some combination of digital and analog and real live human, combining all the best things from the entire history of storytelling to create something altogether new. And now moving on to gear news. Red's monstrous monstro sensor is here at long last. Red has been talking about this monstro sensor since 2008, and now as AK helium sensors are finally becoming more common in the roughly super 35mm frame size, we have the surprise announcement from Red that their new monstro 8K VV sensor is finally being released. You can get your hands on one now in a weapon brain for the low, low price of (laughs) $79,500. For full tech specs and to check out some of the beautiful test footage, check out the article on nofilmschool.com. And speaking of high resolution, DJI has announced its highest resolution drone camera to date, the Zenmuse X7. And this is breaking news. It's designed for professional aerial cinematographers to use seamlessly with the DJI Inspire 2 drone. In fact, right now it's only compatible with the Inspire 2 platform, though DJI promises future compatibility with other products. The Zenmuse X7 boasts up to 6K video recording at 30 frames per second, a super 35mm sensor, compatibility with four DL mount lenses in 16mm, 24mm, 35mm, and 50mm sizes, and a brand new DJI cinema color system to allow for greater freedom in post-production. The Zenmuse X7 camera is priced at $2,699 US dollars, 
the 16, 24, 35 millimeter lenses will be available for $1,300 each, and the 50 millimeter lens will be sold for $1,199. Customers can purchase the Zenmuse X7 Prime lens combo, including all four lenses, for $4,299. It's pretty good. Pretty good deal. This is an amazing deal, actually. This this is the most affordable kind of cinematic solution for drone pilots yet. The Zenmuse X7 starts shipping in early November 2017, and you can get it online at DJI.com. And we'll be right back with you after this very short commercial break with an Ask No Film School question. Vimeo Live is the latest innovation from our favorite video hosting platform. Now, you simply don't have to worry about running a low-quality live stream ever again. With Vimeo Live, you get pristine quality across all devices. You can broadcast your live events in full HD 1080p and enjoy built-in cloud transcoding so your viewers can watch in stunning high quality, perfectly fit for their device and bandwidth. You're also sure to breathe easy thanks to reliable features and more controls. Share securely with privacy options, enjoy live chat support, and get more flexibility with RTMP without hidden overage charges. What's more, you can engage your audience from anywhere, embed the player wherever you choose, see who's attending your event by enabling email capture in the player, turn on live chat, and view live and archive stats to track performance. Finally, Vimeo Live allows you to have one home for all your video needs. Get the best of Vimeo across your workflow for live and recorded videos. Manage and store in one place, replace archived videos with files in up to 4K, create review pages, and more. In an offer exclusive to the No Film School podcast listeners, Vimeo is offering 10% off live pro or live business accounts. Sign up using the promo code NFSLIVE. This discount offer expires 12-31-2017, is limited to one use per person, may not be combined with other offers, and will be applied to the first year of your subscription, after which time your subscription will automatically renew at the regular retail price each year until you cancel. Once again, that promo code is capital NFS LIVE. This week in Ask No Film School, Emil F. Scanning wrote on the boards and said that the photographer on his last two short films teased him because he always records the entire scene in each shot. Say, in a dialogue with an over-the-shoulder close-up POV, etc. on each character, he'd have them say all of their lines in each shot. But, he asked, doesn't it make sense to do this? Do you guys plan how you edit the film before you shoot it and thereby only shoot parts of the scene in each shot? Or do you do like I do? And what do you think would be the pros and cons of each method? To help answer Emil's question, I called Oren Soffer, a DP based in New York and Los Angeles, who's written a couple of No Film School articles, like the great Alexa Mini versus Red Epic W shootout we ran back in February. Here's what he had to say. Well, there's sort of two ways to approach this um, from my experience. And one of them is to do exactly what Emil is doing. Um, so... This method, which basically entails shooting an entire scene from beginning to end from multiple different angles and capturing the entire scene that way, what that really helps is it helps an actor stay in a scene. So, you know, if you have actors who are performing a scene and they need to get to a very specific emotional place, it is often really helpful for them to be able to go through every beat of that scene in order to get to that emotional place. Whereas if you're shooting only portions of a scene for different um, angles of coverage, it sometimes can be very difficult for an actor to get back to that place. So that is, those are the situations in which it would be advantageous to shoot in this way. The downside of it, obviously, is that it takes up a lot of time. 
And especially in low-budget situations, I know we're always a little tough on time. So I think that the best method is actually to do a mix of these two different techniques. I think it's very helpful for a director to sort of at least have a rough idea of what he or she wants to use in the edits in terms of coverage, um, and then pick and choose which angles you're performing the entire scene in. So, for example, if you sort of have a general idea that in a scene you have somebody like entering a room and having a bit of a discussion with somebody, and then they, let's say, get up and leave like halfway through the scene, you may have a sense, if you think about it ahead of time, that you'll want to cover the entrance and exit of the scene in, in a wide shot. So that's something where since you sort of already know that, you can go into the scene knowing that, well, I only really need to cover this portion of the scene and this portion of the scene from this angle. But when you go in for, let's say, over-the-shoulder coverages, you might want to perform the entire scene to make sure that you have the entire range of the performance to select from in the edit. So really at the end of the day, you sort of need to take into account how much time you have on set in order to perform the scene multiple times, um, how many times your actors are going to be able to go through the scene in its entirety, and sort of balance that with um, how many angles or how many options in post you want of the entire coverage of the scene. At the end of the day, like anything else, it's a give and a take and it's a balancing act, but there really isn't one, only one way to do this one or the other. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say to Emil. Thanks, Oren, and thanks for the question, Emil. And now moving on to movie openings. Oscar-nominated documentarian Matthew Heineman's City of Ghosts is coming to Amazon Prime Instant tomorrow. I've talked about this one on the show before. When I saw it at Sundance, there was the longest standing ovation of any film I've seen at a festival. It's a gripping look at the rise of ISIS in Syria, told through the eyes of untrained journalists and local witnesses who risked their own lives and suffered unimaginable personal tragedies to document and share the truth behind ISIS's violent takeover of their city by uploading stories and videos to the Internet. It's an incredibly tense movie, the documentary version of a thriller, but also inspiring to witness the bravery of everyday people. We will link to my interview with Heinemann about the movie in this week's podcast post. And coming to Netflix on Friday, you can see the Meyerowitz stories, new and selected. This is one of the four films that I caught at New York Film Festival, and it was the most New York-y of them all. I think at this point we all know what kind of middle-aged slice-of-life dramedy we're getting into when we go to see a Noah Baumbach film, but that doesn't change the fact that for the most part they are still hilarious and deeply affecting. His latest familial odyssey tells the story of the Meyerowitzes in a pretty unorthodox structure. Baumbach presents the film in chapters, quote, I thought of it in the writing of like a collection of stories that an author had published separately. You know, this one was in the Paris Review, this one was in the New Yorker, then they were collected and put together, he said in a panel following the screening I attended. The film is about Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller, who play stepbrothers competing to reconcile with their difficult father, a character brilliantly brought to life by the incredible Dustin Hoffman. So it's a great cast. It's on Netflix. You can see it Friday. Why not? Coming out in theaters on October 13th is 7852. This is a documentary that's being released by IFC Midnight, and it's one that all Hitchcock fans definitely need to check out. Director Alexander O. Philippe, who previously made The People vs. George Lucas, has been obsessed with Hitchcock since a very young age. He told me in our interview that he actually started hosting watching parties for his parents and their friends at the age of 12. While there's much to unpack about Hitchcock's masterpiece Psycho, 
This doc is able to take an hour and a half and focus on one single scene. It's not just any scene, however. It's the most infamous scene of all time. The title of 7852 alludes to the amount of camera setups, 78, and cuts, 52, in the shower scene of Psycho. Wow. Yeah. It took seven days to shoot, and this doc proves how it really was the culminating point in Hitchcock's entire career. The doc features the likes of Guillermo del Toro, Eli Roth, Elijah Wood, and even Janet Lee's stand-in from the scene itself. You can listen to my podcast with the director when we drop it on October 30th as a spooky Halloween audio treat. I bet it's no coincidence that it's coming out on Friday the 13th. But this looks like a great weekend to go and see documentaries in the theater, even if they're not spooky, because two more strong ones are also coming out. The first is For Akeem by Emmy Award-winning directing team Jeremy S. Levine and Landon Van Sost. It premiered in Berlin this year and then debuted in North America at Tribeca. It's a very intimate coming-of-age portrait of a black teenage girl named Daje Shelton from outside St. Louis. What would be just a moving character study is given extra gravity by the socio-political goings-on in this country. It's not a documentary about the police shooting of black teenager Michael Brown right near Daje's town, but at the same time, it is 100% about that. The movie's also filmed beautifully, to the point where I wasn't always sure it was a documentary. And I talk about that and much more about the film's creation with its directors and producer Yabo Boyd in a podcast called For Akeem, How to Make an Authentic Movie About Someone Else's Story, which we will also link to in the podcast post. The next doc coming out on Friday is another film that I saw at Tribeca this year, Lana Wilson's The Departure. Wilson's known for her Emmy Award-winning feature doc after Tiller about the foremost targeted abortion doctors in America, and this film couldn't be more different in tone or style. It's a meditative, poetic film about a former punk-turned-Buddhist priest who runs retreats for depressed and suicidal people in Japan. The question at the core of the film is what makes life worth living, and I think anyone would be hard-pressed to watch it and not start questioning what it is that gives their own life meaning. I have a really insightful interview with Wilson up on the site where she reveals her rigorous shooting process and the Buddhist nature of filmmaking itself. The Friday release is limited, but it's continuing to roll out all across the country throughout November, so keep an eye out for it. And now on to some upcoming grant and lab and competition deadlines. The Smash Cut Film Lab has a deadline on October 20th. If you liberty-minded filmmakers could use 100 days and 10K to make your next short film under the guidance of Taliesin Nexus, you should check this lab out. And Taliesin Nexus is just a resource for filmmakers in my research. They're not like a corporation or anything, even though they have a very corporate-sounding name. It's an advanced program for those of you who have filmmaking, screenwriting, or producing experience and want an opportunity to work alongside like-minded creatives with the guidance of seasoned professionals in developing, writing, and editing your short film or web series idea. This year's focus is on adaptations from real people to historical events. So if you have an adaptation you want to work on, why not apply? Yeah, every year we talk about this. I'm like, who the hell is Taliesin Nexus? So if anyone's successfully been through this program, we would love to hear from you because I want to know kind of more about what it's actually all about. Meanwhile, the Frameline Completion Fund has a deadline on October 31st, Halloween. This is for films that reflect the complexity of the LGBTQ community, and the grant offers up to five grand per film for finishing funds. For over a quarter century, Frameline has provided more than 140 grants to help ensure that LGBTQ films are completed and viewed by wider audiences. And now moving on to festival deadlines, the Dublin International Film Festival has the final deadline on October 15th. 
This takes place February 22nd to March 4th, 2018 in Dublin, Ireland. It's been running for 15 years, and it's said to deliver the very best in Irish film and film talent to Irish and international audiences each year. The San Luis Obispo International Film Festival has a deadline on October 16th. This takes place March 13th to 18th, 2018 in San Luis Obispo, California. Last year marked the third time it was named to Movie Maker Magazine's list of the top 50 festivals worth the entry fee. There are $1,000 cash prizes for Best Narrative Feature, Best Doc Feature, and $500 cash prizes for Best Narrative Short Film and Best Doc Short Film, as well as Best Student Film of any length. And finally, the Say It Loud Film Festival. What was that, John? And finally, the Say It Loud Film Festival. What was that, John? And finally, the Say It Loud Film Festival. Say It Loud! Finally, the Say It Loud Film Festival has a deadline on October. Don't tell me what to do. Finally, the Say It Loud (laughs) Film Festival has a deadline on October 20th. This is the early bird deadline. It takes place in Baltimore, Maryland on May 25th, 2018. And films will be selected based on their ability to move, touch, and inspire viewers. So the subject matter of the film must be about social issues. And prices go to the best short films. And when you're not busy applying to these fabulous opportunities, you can listen to next Monday's interview podcast. Earlier in this show and last week on the show, I talked about the release of Spielberg on HBO. It's a documentary that's like the ultimate behind-the-scenes video spanning Steven Spielberg's entire career. It's a traditionally crafted documentary with talking heads and tons of archival materials, But those talking heads are some of the most prolific figures in modern American cinema, including, of course, Spielberg himself, who gets really personal in some of his anecdotes. This is largely in part due to the thoughtful interviewing done by the film's director, Susan Lacey, who spoke to Spielberg for almost 30 hours for this project. I interviewed Lacey and the film's editor, Deborah Peretz, about how they managed all of that material and what they learned from Spielberg and his movies in making this one. It's a great conversation, and you can hear it on Monday. Meanwhile, you can read about everything we talked about on this show and more in this week's podcast post and at nofilmschool.com. And please, if you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes or your favorite app. We also really, really appreciate those iTunes ratings. And we love when you stay in touch. So please do. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John Jim. Jim Jim Jim. Jim John Jim. And we are at No Film School. See you next week. <laughs>